Well, guys, it's great to be here, but there's one minor problem. I asked one Dennis McHenry this afternoon, how many handouts do you think we should make? He looks outside, he says, hey, it's snowing. I don't know, 50, maybe 70 tops. So then, this is basically enough handouts for people in the front row, if that much. <laughs> so what I'm going to ask you to do, since there are only 70 handouts, is to no, you know, you guys, you, you, you keep, people cannot be sitting beside each other with handouts. Each handout has to be shared. So it means that each person with a handout should have beside him or her people with no handouts. That's the only way we want to get, you know, 70 handouts in this crowd. Okay, so um, thanks for the invitation to Dennis in particular, of course, to Colorado College more generally. And as you know, my, my talk is on the subject of liberalism and race though it really helps to have the handout because it has diagrams on it. So I'm going to have to do a kind of show and tell thing, which is sort of a long way from high school. Okay, so my paper, for those of you who do not have the handout, is divided into four sections. So I'll tell you them from now. Number one, liberalism. Number two, race. Number three, liberalism and race historically. And number four, Liberalism and race, a possible retrieval. So the idea is to go through systematically and analytic style the different components. So first of all, what do I mean by liberalism? Well, to clarify, I do not mean liberalism in the sense of the left wing of the Democratic Party, okay? Or these days, perhaps, to the left of the Democratic Party. I don't know what your sympathies are. I'm trying to remember which way Colorado voted, but hey, I don't mean liberalism in that sense. I mean liberalism in a broader sense. The sense I mean is the ideology that develops in the modern period, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, in opposition to the previous feudal hierarchy of medieval Europe. I mean the ideology that emphasizes the individual, individual rights and freedoms, limited government, the promise of universalism, the promise of egalitarianism. In this sense, both George Bush and Jesse Jackson are liberals, believe it or not, okay? This is an encompassing sense, and the U.S. sense of liberal to the left, that's a peculiar U.S. usage. So I'm not using it in that sense. I'm using liberals in the broad sense, which encompasses you know, John Locke, um, John Rawls, um, Immanuel Kant, and so forth, individual rights and freedoms, and the idea of you know, the equality of people, thereby justifying a political system of a particular kind. Okay, so what I'm going to start off by trying to persuade you of is that under the umbrella of liberalism, there are different possible varieties and there are other varieties that you know, have not even been thought of yet. And part of the point of my talk is to try to persuade people that actual historic liberalism has been inadequate on race, but that that does not rule out the possibility of a future liberalism which does a better job of dealing with issues of race. Okay, so think of some of the distinctions within liberalism, and certainly um, people here who are philosophy majors, who have done a course in school, university, however long ago, will be familiar with some of these. For example, there's the liberalism of John Locke and the somewhat different liberalism of Immanuel Kant. 
There's a liberalism associated with the social contract, which has come back in a big way with the work of John Rawls. And there's a liberalism associated with utilitarianism. That's Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, and so forth. There's a liberalism of the left, which in the US context is just called liberalism. And there's a liberalism of the right, which also deserves that title from a historic perspective. So those are some traditional distinctions. Now here are some non-traditional distinctions. There's a liberalism that was actually dominant in history over the past few hundred years, and there's a liberalism that has been sanitized for a contemporary audience. In other words, you'll get a history of the evolution of liberalism, which I suggest to you is in crucial respects a misleading one. There's a liberalism associated with what John Rawls calls ideal theory, a perfect society, and there's a liberalism of non-ideal theory, which does not mean real politic, which does not mean Machiavelli, but which means dealing with justice in an imperfect society. There's a liberalism that feminists have said really represents male domination, patriarchal forms of liberalism, and then corresponding in opposition to that, there's liberalism associated with feminism that's of a feminist type. And then finally, our particular subject, there's going to be what I suggest has historically been liberalism that has been racialized, a racial liberalism, and then what I'm going to advocate in response to that, a non-racial liberal theory. Okay, so where do I get this stuff from and how am I thinking of liberalism? Well, what I suggest is that if you analyze liberalism as a body of political theory, you can sort of decompose it into particular components. And I'm going to suggest five components. First of all, there's a set of value commitments. Liberalism is committed to the moral equality, the freedom, the self-realization of individuals. And in that respect, liberalism is opposed, as I said, to the previous dominant ideologies of the feudal order, where the idea is you were born and you die in a particular social estate. So you're born a serf. It's not the case that there's a 12-step program by which you can move from being a serf to being a knight. You're born a serf. That's it. You're a serf for life. So liberalism has a great advantage as an ideology of saying, People are born equal. Everybody has certain natural rights and freedoms, and society and government should be organized in such a way that everybody can realize those rights and freedoms, and that we should see society as predicated on the moral equality of everybody. It should not be the case that we see society as divided into those of noble blood, and those of common blood, and those of common blood have to tip their hat to those of noble blood. Rather, we want a society where everybody is morally equal. And this, of course, are the societies of the modern world, the societies associated famously with the American Revolution, with the French Revolution, and the slogans, you know those slogans, Jefferson's famous line, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, the French Revolution, liberty, egality, fraternity. Okay, so liberalism in this sense committed, in, in theory at least, to the freedom and equality of all individuals. So that's the first component. A second component, and here we get into the philosophical stuff which Dennis was sort of, you know, touching on, those big cumbersome words that you, you sort of drop at cocktail parties, so it'll show you, you know, you've done a philosophy course or two, ontology. So the term here is a social ontology. 
And this is a combination that might sound a bit odd, because ontology, if that's about being, then what does society have to do with it? Ontology, that's just the way things are, and that goes on you know, for millennia, for thousands of years, that's independent of the social. And the social ontology phrase is a phrase that's trying to say human beings are so shaped by the societies of which they are members, they're so shaped of the particular groups they're in, that you can talk about an ontology that's social in the sense that there's a second nature. There's a second nature on top of the first nature, and the second nature is a socially created one. And then liberalism is accused by its critics of being committed to a social ontology of atomic individuals, just isolated individuals as in social contract theory, not shaped by history, not shaped by society, not shaped by culture. And this has been a sort of standing accusation against liberalism, and liberals have said, or some liberals at least have said, that's not true. What we're committed to is not descriptive individualism, saying that you know, they're just these sort of atomic individuals. What we're committed to is moral individualism, the idea that the individual is, should be seen as the locus of value and society should be organized so the individual can prosper, but we can take allowance for the fact that individuals are shaped by society and history. So for some liberals at least, the atomic individualist accusation is false. C, a conceptual map of society and the political realm. What I mean by that is that if you're doing social and political theory, the idea is you have to work with a kind of map of how things are. You're basically saying society in its essentials looks like this. Political systems in their essentials should deal with these issues. And the reference point I have here, which I've often used in my work, is feminist theory. Because what feminist theory says is that the orthodox way of mapping things is to say that the public sphere is sharply demarcated from the private sphere. The private sphere is the realm of the household, it's the realm of gender relations, it's the realm of sex, it's the appropriate location for women. And the public sphere, that's where the market is, that's where the state is, that's where the political action is, that's the appropriate realm for men. So what you're getting is a particular mapping of society, a particular mapping of politics, and you're saying politics is concerned with the public sphere, the private sphere, that's apolitical. That's basically ahistorical, it's always been that way, it's men and women, and, and women's appropriate role is to serve men. And of course, the feminist critique of that is, you know, this is bogus. There's political domination within the private sphere, and it manifests itself in the public sphere, so that the way you have drawn the map is misleading. So part of the point about liberalism is that you get different maps according to the particular agendas. So patriarchal liberalism, male-dominated liberalism, has drawn the map in a certain way, and feminist liberals are saying, no, that's not how we're drawing the map. We want to include a significant amount of what's in the private sphere as actually political, because it represents male domination, it represents particular gender relations. D, a theory of history, or maybe, if not, some that rises to the level of a theory and account of history. And liberalism has historically been associated with a kind of Whig progressivism, the idea being that on every day and in every way, things are getting better. I mean, that's a bit of a caricature, but the idea is we're moving steadily onward and upwards to better societies. 
And again, critics have said, this is ridiculous. Look at the 20th century. There were more people killed in the 20th century in wars under repressive governments of various kinds than were killed in the dozens of previous centuries. So it's clearly not the case that there's a sort of steady upward path. So again, liberals have said, well, you can't really say we're committed to that. You have to look at the actual historical story and take account of that story. And then finally, E, rights and freedoms and particular entitlements. So for example, the rule of law, due process, freedom of association, freedom of worship, those rights you take for granted as part of a Western democracy. So five components, value commitments, social ontology, a conceptual map, a theory of history or just an account of history, and a particular list, a particular schedule of rights and freedoms. So here now is my radical suggestion. And I think how boring a philosophy talk would be if there's not something in a radical out of the ordinary. My radical suggestion is that apart from A, the value commitments, everything else is up for grabs. And if everything else is up for grabs, then it follows that different social ontologies, different mappings of the social and political realm, in conjunction with the value commitments and particular accounts of history, could generate radically different schedules of rights and freedoms, liberalisms quite unfamiliar to us. So what I'm trying to get you to do is to see that the liberalism that we have in our head, the liberalism that has sort of shaped this society and the world, is a contingent form of liberalism. It doesn't have to be that way. And it's possible to imagine alternative forms of liberalism, which are still legitimately liberal theories, but they're working with different social ontologies, different maps, and different accounts of history. So that, guys, for those of you who are unfortunate enough not to have a handout, which thanks to Dennis McHenry is most people in this room, that was section one. Let's now move on to section two, race. So first section, liberalism. Second section, race. Okay, how should we think of race? I'm going to suggest to you that you can think of it in terms of a taxonomy of two basic alternatives. Race as non-existent or race as existent. And what would philosophy be without jargon? You know, it's the whole point of being a philosopher is to be able to sort of you know, get an expanded vocabulary of big words. So the terminology here, race as non-existent has a title. It's racial eliminativism. And then unsurprisingly, race as existent is called racial anti-eliminativism. You can see how imaginative that is. So the race as non-existent folks, they're saying biology, anthropology teaches us that race does not actually exist. So this category that has had such impact on the shaping of the world for the past few hundred years, the idea that the human race is divided naturally into these particular discrete races, you know, um, whites, blacks, Asians, and so forth, race does not actually exist. What you have is a continuum in which one kind of human being shades into another, and where we draw the line is really quite arbitrary. So race does not exist, and they then go further and say, since race does not exist biologically, we need to eliminate race from our vocabulary. Race is like a hangover from a previous period when we didn't understand the actual me um, mechanics of the world. 
So just as in chemistry, you once had the category phlogiston to explain combustion, and then you, know, you had Priestley, and it says, well, that doesn't explain combustion at all. When you talk about oxygen. So you discard that category. Similarly, these people say, we need to eliminate race from our theoretical vocabulary because it refers to nothing. And obviously, you can see there's a certain attraction to that, and it seems to make a certain sense. So why, then, do racial anti-eliminativists hold on to their position? Okay, well, their position subdivides into two. People who think race does exist naturally, so people who don't buy the argument that you know, anthropology shows race does not exist, and another set of people who say, the people who say race does not exist biologically are correct. Nonetheless race, nonetheless, race does exist. It exists in a different way. It exists as a sociopolitical entity. Biological race does not exist. Sociopolitical race does exist. And in order to sort of make sense of the world, we need to hold on to sociopolitical race as a category. Therefore, the correct metaphysical position is not eliminativism, it's anti-eliminativism. You want to keep race as a category rather than to eliminate it. Okay, so my own sympathies are with the anti-eliminativist position. I think race does exist, but I think its existence is sociopolitical rather than biological. And I link race to this concept of a social ontology, an ontology which is not natural, not transhistorical, an ontology brought into existence by social forces. So the way I think of race is as a particular position in a racialized social system. So people who think of race this way use race as a verb, use racialized as a verb. Because race, we now think of race as an active social process. It's not something intrinsic in human beings as a biological reality. It's a social category. It's a social construct. So you can talk about people being raced. And the claim is that race in this sense is not fixed. It changes over time. It changes from one country to another. And here's an example. So I'm speaking to you guys today, and I'm sure you think of me as Charles Mills, black philosopher, addressing an audience at Colorado College. Now, why is that? Why am I black? I'm black in this country because of a particular racial rule, and that rule is called the one-drop rule. And the one-drop rule basically says anybody with black ancestry is thereby black. And the one-drop rule is applied to no other race. If you think about it, it couldn't be, because it could only be the case that it's applied to one race, otherwise you'd get inconsistent judgments. Because otherwise you'd say, well, if anybody has white ancestry, then by the white one-drop rule, they're white. If anybody has any Asian ancestry, by the Asian one-drop rule, they're Asian. So it would be inconsistent to have the one-drop rule applied to more than one group. It's only applied to blacks. And the historic reason for it is because black blood was seen as a stigma. So the idea is coming out of the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. The idea is you don't want to be black. You want to be pure white. Blackness drags you down. So any black ancestry dra drags you down. So that's the historic origins in this country of the one drop rule. Now let's say I go to where I came from. As you can tell from my accent, I'm not from around these parts. Let's say I go back to Jamaica, which is where I'm from. If I go to Jamaica, I cease to be a black man. In Jamaica, the racial rules are different. 
The Jamaican social system has historically been a three-tiered system. Think of it as a pyramid. Whites at the top, blacks at the bottom, and in the middle, the category of what are called browns. So in Jamaica, I'm not a black man, I'm a brown man. I'm a Jamaican brown man, and were I to go home and start talking about blackness, the black population would look at me in amazement. Charles, what's happening to you? You've spent too much time in the United States. You need to come home more often. Everybody knows you're a brown man. You're the son of Mr. and Mrs. Mills up the road, etc., etc. End of story. Now imagine an alternative world. I'm sure there's some science fiction fans in the audience, and you know that one of the sort of favorite sub-themes of science fiction is the alternative universe. So, for example, the South win the Civil War, and then you say, okay, what would have happened in that alternative United States where the South win? The Nazis win World War II. There's been a huge amount of literature produced on that. You know, you have a Third Reich, which if it doesn't last a thousand years, certainly lasts much longer than the 12 years the actual Reich was. So I want you to sort of contemplate the following alternative world. It's the Dark Ages. Europe sunk in superstition, backwardness, etc. Somewhere in Africa, a group of Africans with a lot of time on their hands say, I have an idea. Let's get in our ships and sail north and discover Europe. We'll discover Europe and we'll link up with the Moors in Spain, we'll link up with you know, the Islamic population in the east, and we'll conquer Europe. Sounds like a plan. So they sail north, they land, and they successfully overrun Dark Ages Europe. And what do they establish? They establish a racial dictatorship. And in this racial dictatorship, white people are seen as savages. Because these white people, they were in the Dark Ages. They didn't have anything. We are the ones who are able to discover them. These guys in the East, the force of Islam, they have all kinds of you know, knowledge which has been forgotten in Western Europe. We're going to rule, so dark people are on top. Now, in such a world, you could have a racial system in which the one-drop rule that's familiar to us is applied in reverse. Since white people are stigmatized, since white people are savages, any white ancestry therefore makes you white because white blood is a contaminant. You want to be black, you want to be Arab, you want to be Moorish, you don't want this inferior white blood running around your veins. In such a world, in such an alternative Europe, I would then be a white guy by virtue of my white ancestry. But it doesn't mean I'm a white guy riding at the front of the bus, or in this case, I guess, the ox cart, it's medieval times. I'm at the back of the bus. I'm a white guy who's oppressed because it's a different racial system. So the same person talking to a Charles Mills would be racialized differently into real-life racial systems, the United States and Jamaica, and re racialized a third way in an alternative, non-existent racial system where Africans and Moors and Arabs conquered Dark Ages Europe. So it's the same person in each case biologically, but I'm racially categorized differently in each, and as such, the amount of privilege I have, the amount of opportunities I have, is going to have a radically different shaping effect on my life, on my life prospects, on my consciousness, and so forth. So what I'm trying to get you guys to see is that an ontology does not have to be a natural ontology to have a major shaping effect on people. It, you get radically different social ontologies in each of these three worlds, and each of them has a huge impact. So the fact that it's an ontology that's social does not mean it's any the less real for that. So the basic point then is that I'm claiming that race is most illuminatingly thought of 
as a system of social domination in which your racial membership is relative to the particular system. It's not biological, it's not intrinsic, it just depends how the categories are drawn, in which, in which particular box you put. Are you a black man? Are you a brown man? Are you a white man? It depends on the particular racial rules. And that leads me to the sort of second theme under this topic, how should we think of race? Well, given what I've just said, you won't be surprised to hear, I think the most illuminating way to think of race as, is as a social system. So to the extent that race is discussed in philosophy, the usual focus is on racism, a particular set of attitudes, ideas, values, beliefs held by particular people. I'm not saying we should not talk about racism, but I think that's not the most illuminating framework. And the most illuminating framework, in my opinion, is to talk about racial domination as a system. And you could have different forms of racial domination. In this alternative world I just described for you, you have Africans and Moors and Arabs on top. You have brown and black people on top. But in the actual world we live in, the most important form of racial domination historically has been white domination. Because it's Europeans who basically, in the age of so-called discovery, go out into the world, settle in countries, colonize other countries. White domination is historically the most influential, the most far-reaching, the most long-lasting form of racial domination. So the term that was originally used in the US is white supremacy. It's a term that has sort of dropped out of fashion. To many people, in my, it's inappropriate to use it now because it has a kind of polemical tone to it. You sound like an extremist. But there's some people who say, we need to hold on to this term, white supremacy, except we're going to give it a different twist. Okay, so here's my definition of white supremacy. White domination leading to systemic, significant, unfair white advantage established by white causality actions and inactions, and maintained in place by white causality, actions and inactions. So six components, let me go through them. Systemic, the point of that is to establish it's more than individual transactions. It's a social system. Significant, it's more than minor differences. If it were just minor differences, you'd say, you know, you're, you're exaggerating, you're sort of being, being hyperbolic. It's not that big a deal. So where stuff can be quantified, you say, well, these, these differences are large. Differences in income, differences in wealth, differences in life expectancies, differences in incarceration rates, you say, these are significant differences. Unfair. Suppose it were really the case that white people were smarter than people of color. Then the fact that white people are in a privileged position, you say, there's nothing unfair about it. It's a competitive society, it's a market society, white people are smarter, there's nothing surprising about the fact that white people are on top. But, of course, my claim would be, and I hope most of you share this with me, it's not because white people are smarter, it's because of particular unfair discriminatory processes. White advantage. This is a term that makes many whites uneasy. Many whites prefer to use the term racism because the way you sort of step away from that, you just say, I'm not a racist. These other white people in the past, they may have been racist. I'm not a racist, so we don't need to talk about it anymore. And I'm saying, once you start talking about white supremacy, or if that sounds too polemical, white privilege, 
then the question is not, are you or are you not a racist? The question becomes a different question, and the question becomes, are you unfairly privileged by the system? So we start talking about white privilege, white advantage, white benefit, that is unfair. Established by, the point of that is to say it's not natural. It happened as a result of particular actions. And these actions can include inactions in the sense that doing nothing in certain circumstances can be just as effective in bringing a particular outcome about as doing something. Okay, so six components, systemic, significant, unfair, involving white advantage, established by, and it's not just actions, it's inactions. Now here's the accusation you sometimes run into. This is a conspiracy theory. United States has a long history of conspiracy theories. There's a famous book by Richard Hofstadter, The Paranoid Style in American Policy, that was the title, and that was way back in the 50s, conspiracy, as you guys know, there's 9-11, there's this, there's that, you know, there's Obama, you know, there's, he wasn't really born, he was this, but there's all kinds of conspiracies. You, Charles Mills, have just presented us with one of the favorite conspiracy theories in the black community. It's not a conspiracy, and you know, if it's not a conspiracy, then it means it just happened to be that way. So we're given a false dichotomization. Either it's a conspiracy or things just happened. This is wrong for two reasons. To begin with, there are real-life conspiracies. It doesn't mean that everything is a big conspiracy, but there are particular local conspiracies. The Ku Klux Klan was once more influential than it is now. You have the Ku Klux Klan getting together and planning stuff. Those are conspiracies. In the 1950s, after the Brown decision, you found white citizens' councils being formed. You know, what should we do about this situation? Let's sort of, you know, form private schools, going to withdraw kids. These were particular conspiracies. So the first point is, there are local conspiracies. But the more important point, and that's the second point, is the idea of coordinated human causality does not imply a conspiracy. How do you define a conspiracy? I suggest there are three components. A, more than one person is involved. B, it's aimed at a morally bad outcome. You can imagine good conspiracies. We're going to throw you a surprise. Well, don't tell them. Let's, let's, let's throw dad a surprise birthday party. Make sure nobody tells him. That's a good conspiracy. But usually, of course, it'd be conspiracies to bring about bad events. <coughs> so two components, more than one person, aimed at a morally bad outcome and carried out in secret. White supremacy is not brought about by conspiracy because this stuff was done in the open. Slavery was not a secret. Jim Crow was not a secret. This was done through congressional decisions, through the passing of racist legislation at state and local levels, through Supreme Court decisions ratifying Jim Crow, through white race riots, through national discriminatory practices. This stuff is all in the open. So that's enough to show it wasn't a conspiracy. So the crucial point is you can talk about coordinated white causality without that degenerating into conspiracy. And part of the point I'm making is it's a social ontology that is brought into existence by coordinated white causality. So that was section two for those of you unfortunate enough not to have a handle. Section three, liberalism and race historically. Okay, how should we think of the development of ideas. Well, if you're a philosopher, here's how you think of it. There's this guy up in the clouds, and he gets an idea, 
And this idea, by a kind of process of natural birth without insemination, gives rise to another idea, which in turn gives rise to another idea. So it's a parthenogenesis of ideas. The vulgar material realm, human beings of particular class and race and gender memberships, never enters into it. Is this a sensible way of thinking of ideas? It is completely crazy. And anybody in sociology knows sociology of belief 101. Ideas are the result of human beings. Even when human beings hear ideas, it means they interpret them in a particular way. We need to look at the material embodiedness, material embeddedness of particular human beings. We need to look at societies at a particular time. We need to look at the uptake of ideas by particular groups. Elementary sociology of belief. Now, in the West, let me ask you a simple question. Who have been the recognized philosophers? What social groups have they belonged to? Well, they've been largely male. They've been largely class privileged rather than from the working class. You don't find many peasant philosophers. You don't find many proletarian philosophers. And they've been overwhelmingly white. So what would you expect? You would expect that the dominant variety of liberalism remember what I said earlier about the possibility of different kinds, will be patriarchal, classist, racial liberalism. Elementary sociology of belief. It's not so much a matter of the individual sexism and racism of particular thinkers. It's the way in which your group membership orients you to take stuff for granted, to not challenge particular things, to automatically assume that this is the appropriate way of looking at things. Patriarchal liberalism as a concept very familiar because of the significant presence of feminist philosophers in the academy. Starting from the late 60s with second wave feminist theory, you get people, uh, what was then called women's liberation. Some of these women go into the academy, different areas, start working in philosophy. So you get a beachhead established. So you now have a significant body of work in feminist theory. The idea of patriarchal liberalism is pretty well familiar to all of us, I would think, even if people don't necessarily agree with it. You're basically talking about how liberalism as a theory has been shaped by a male perspective in terms of, let's say, public-private distinction, in terms of a failure to look at issues of gender justice. Racial liberalism as a concept, less familiar because of the severe degree of underrepresentation of people of color. Philosophy in particular, one of the whitest of the humanities. The figures in the US, professional philosophers, as against cracker barrel philosophers, barstool philosophers, as you know, there are millions of those. Professional philosophers, folks with actual PhDs, it's maybe 10, 11,000. And out of those, the number of black philosophers, 120. It's 1%. That's an indication of how white philosophy is. 1% of professional philosophers are black. Another 1% are like Latinos, Asian Americans put together. Native American philosophers, like five or six people, fingers of one hand. Very white profession, 98% white. So it means that work on race has lagged behind work on gender. So I have to make a case for you for the concept of racial liberalism in a way I think I would not have had to make a case for patriarchal liberalism because the argument is so much better established because of this significant female presence. Still underrepresented, it's not 50% by any means, but in philosophy, for example, the number of female philosophers, which basically means white female philosophers, is about 20% as compared with, as I say, 2% for people of color. Okay, here's how we should think of racial um, liberal theory. The crucial site of demarcation in, in um, liberalism with respect to gender 
is the household. So you get a different set of rules for the household and generating from that, you get a set of distinctions and that is what characterizes patriarchal liberalism in terms of how the household and women in the household are represented. The equivalent location in the case of race, I suggest, is relations between people who come to be called white and people who come to be called people of color in the process of European expansionism. So that's slavery, that's European settlement, that's expropriation of native peoples, that's colonization. So you then ask yourself, are the rules for these populations the same on both sides of the color line? Is it the case that Native Americans are seen as equal, black slaves are seen as equal, colonized peoples under the British or the French or the Dutch empires are seen as equal? Obviously the answer is no. So what it means is that you get a liberalism which is racialized, which accommodates to European domination. And if you look at the work of Locke, of Hume, of Kant, of Mill, of Hegel, all the big names of European philosophy, you find that they all had, I mean, there are one or two exceptions, but the big names, they all had racial views. So in terms of Lockean self-ownership, in terms of civilization, in terms of Kantian autonomy and personhood, in terms of Mill's idea of cultural development, in terms of Hegel's idea of contributions to world history, they're all racialized. And if people want, you know, I, I can give examples in the, in the discussion section. So going back to my A, B, C, D, E breakdown, what I suggest is that you have a racialized social ontology, that's B, a Eurocentric mapping of society and the political systems, that's C, a Eurocentric view of history, that's D, and you put them together, and what do you come up with? Surprise, surprise. You get a set of, of rights and freedoms which is color-coded so that Europeans have equal rights. Of course, for, that's false because there's gender as well. But European male population have equal rights. People of color are in a lower category. They do not have equal rights. But your natural response could be, yeah, that's true. That was bad. But that was then. This is not. Which liberal theorist today is going to talk about people of color as naturally inferior, is going to sort of endorse slavery? Obviously, no one. Therefore, you might think, today's liberalism is not racial liberalism, because that's all past. Here's my controversial claim. We can think of racial liberalism as coming in two varieties. There's overtly racist liberalism, that's the liberalism of the past, that is largely dead. Nonetheless, I would claim that today's liberalism is still a racial liberalism in the following sense. It's not overtly racist, but it's conceptually oriented by this past history. It's conceptually oriented, it's ethically oriented by the interests, by the priorities of the racially privileged group, which is the white population. What evidence do I have? Here's my evidence. What is a central theme of the most famous book, the foundation stone of the Western philosophical tradition. The most famous book is Plato's Republic. What's the central theme? Justice. So going back to the start of the Western tradition, justice has been absolutely central to Western philosophy. Why then is there so little discussion of racial justice? You could say, well, if you have the conventional view, the social constructivist view you just outlined, Race didn't even exist in the ancient world, in the ancient Greek times. Race is a product of the modern period, therefore it is unsurprising that 
since race only came into existence a few hundred years ago, that you would not have had historic discussions of racial justice. And that's true. But the question then is, why don't you have discussions of racial justice, given that contemporary discussions of justice are not talking about ancient Greece and ancient Roman medieval Europe. They're talking about justice now. Well, maybe it's because racial justice isn't very important. But how could that be? Think of some crucial points. Racial injustice is an injustice that's distinctive to the modern period. What do I mean by that? Well, it follows from the definition of terms. You have gender in the pre-modern period. You have class in the pre-modern period. You only have race in the modern period. So racial injustice is injustice distinctive to modernity. It should be of interest for that very reason, point one. Point two, racial injustice has involved great atrocities, slavery and genocide, at the very time when human moral equality was supposed to have been widely established. The same time of these revolutions, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, you have slavery. I don't have to tell you guys, you're Americans, that the American Revolution did not abolish slavery, it enshrined it. It enshrined it in a disguised way by avoiding using the language of slavery, but there were basically coded terms in the Constitution that referred to slaves. So we hear about the American Revolution, we hear about the French Revolution, but how many of you would think in this sort of series of revolutions about the Haitian Revolution? which was also part of the revolutionary period and which, unlike these other revolutions, did abolish slavery. Was the Haitian Revolution welcomed by the United States and by the French? Au contraire. <laughs> Under Napoleon, you have an, 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 an army of expeditions sent to crush the slave revolution and sort of turn them again into a colony. And the defeat of Napoleon's armies, some people think, played an important contributory role in the building of the US in terms of France and the Louisiana Purchase. So there's a sense in which the Haitian Revolution is relevant to American history, even if most Americans are not aware of that. But the second point is this. France is so outraged at what Haiti has done that France imposes on Haiti the demand for reparations. So it's not the slaves who get to demand reparations from their former French masters. The slaves are escaped property. They're stolen property. You guys owe us. So Haiti then has to pay France a fortune that you know, it takes like over 100 years to pay back. And so some people have estimated, if you translate it into today's dollars, it would be $21 billion. So when you hear about Haiti being the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, when you think, why can't those people build buildings properly, that when you have an earthquake, everything collapses, you need to take this history into account, that this successful slave revolution had to be contained, lest the contamination spread to the slaveholder to the north, the United States. So that's part of the history of liberalism and the restricted way in which its values were extended. So I'm basically suggesting that racial justice should be a central theme for contemporary political philosophy, and the failure to discuss it is a manifestation of the very whiteness of philosophy that I've spoken about. Finally, a term I'm sure you'll be glad to hear, section four. Liberalism and race, a possible retrieval. So that's the bad stuff, well, what's the good stuff? So some people say, including many of my former friends, why even bother with liberalism? And aren't you, in beating this dead horse of liberalism, aren't you basically selling out 
and endorsing this bankrupt ideology which has been complicit with slavery and racism, why then are you sort of seeking to ingratiate yourself with these liberals? Here's my answer. One, a strategic answer, liberalism is globally hegemonic. With the defeat of the Marxist challenge, with the collapse of Eastern Europe, liberalism is the most influential ideology on a planetary level. It doesn't mean everybody accepts it, but of all the contenders, it's the most important one. And the views discussed in the academy, you know, you're reading your Foucault and your Derrida and your Lacan, no disrespect to any readers of these works, but it's not the case that on the campaign trail, they have much resonance. It's not the case that in appealing to local governments, that in appealing to Congress, you're going to say, well, listen, I hear it in a discipline and punish, it says this. So there's, <laughs> there's a strategic value. This is the dominant ideology. But there's also a more principled reason, which is that I think, in principle, liberalism is very attractive, but its potential has not been realized. So my basic argument is that if you're a progressive, you think of yourself as a radical, and you say, you know, liberalism, let's sort of put it in the historical wastebasket, you need to ask yourself, is liberalism's retrograde appearance a result of its intrinsic features, or is it a result of the fact that it's basically been a male, white, class-privileged liberalism which has not been in favor of the interests of you know, women, of you know, the lower classes, of people of color. So consider the big three of class, race, and gender. There's a left liberal critique, so this is liberalism in, in the US sense, so you know, sort of left, lib, 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 um, left liberal theory. You need to talk about class. You need to talk about the way people are disadvantaged and advantaged by class. You need to talk about the way that corporate power translates into political power. You need to talk about the fact that you know, only a fraction of the US working class is unionized, that the US has the most inequitable income and wealth distribution of all the Western democracies, the US is the only Western democracy without a universal health care plan, and who knows whether we're going to get one, and that these are manifestations of class differences that liberalism needs to address. There's a feminist critique, we've already seen that, um, that women are basically excluded from individual status because of the private sphere, public sphere distinction, and you need to rewrite the schedule of rights to eliminate patriarchal domination, to promote gender equity. You need to talk about the historic disadvantaging of women. There's also, I would claim, a racial critique, and the racial critique would say, people of color have historically been denied equal rights, so you have a system of white domination which is no longer enforced by Jim Crow legislation, which is no longer signaled by white and colored signs, but which is nonetheless there, if not in a de jure way, in a de facto way, it continues to leave people of color at a disadvantage. So what we need to do in talking about liberalism and race is to ask ourselves the question, the system of white domination, whether you want to call it white supremacy or not, what legacy has it left? How has it affected the social ontology, the way we think of the political? How has it affected the way we think of history? What manifestation has it had in terms of the rights and freedoms people actually have now? And the way to do this, I suggest, 
is to shift discussions of justice in philosophy from distributive justice to rectificatory justice. We need to look at the past and say what public policy measures are called for to make up for the injustices of the past, to eliminate the legacy of white supremacy, and to bring people of color into an expanded United States in which all citizens, independent of race, independent of ethnicity, will be able to flourish in a way that is not tied to racial membership. So there's no unfair white advantage, there's no unfair non-white disadvantage. Race becomes completely irrelevant. In such a world, I suggest, race would cease to exist. And that's what we need to work towards. Thank you. I've said at least one controversial thing, I'd be <laughs> deeply disappointed if I hadn't. Okay, so the question is, given liberalism's historic roots in social contract theory and this idea of sort of naturally antagonistic atomic individuals who are egoistic individuals pursuing their own self-interest, given that that's sort of so deeply embedded in the genealogy of liberalism, how can you really have a liberalism, um, I'm assuming I'm getting right, how can you really have a liberalism that's going to be able to sort of get rid of you know, those sort of foundational assumptions? Is, 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 is that fair, more or less? Yeah, okay. So I'd say the atomic individualism charge can be thought of as having at least three dimensions. One, it's a claim about people being self-sufficient and egoistical in that you know, there's a sort of classic line, I think it sort of goes back to Hobbes, you're sort of born as an adult. So childhood is not taken into account. The long period of time when we're dependent on others at the start of our lives, the long period of time at the end of our lives when we're often dependent on others, you don't focus on that. You're sort of focusing on these sort of years in between and you're not taking account of the caregiving work almost exclusively done by women, of course, which is going to be necessary to sort of bring people into the world, to bring kids into the world, to raise them, and then sort of take care of people at the end of their lives. So that's one dimension of critique. Another dimension of critique is that it's atomic individuals in the sense of beings who are thought of as asocial, acultural, ahistorical. So they're outside of history, they're in a state of nature, so you don't think of them as you know, people socialized by particular societies, by particular cultures. And a third dimension, which is one that I'm particularly interested in, is that the thought of people on a par with one another in terms of power, so that they're equipowerful, <clears throat> And the idea of people being positioned in relations and structures of domination and subordination, that tends to be excluded also. And I would say that as an indictment of actual historical dominant liberalism, each of those is absolutely correct. But what I'm trying to say is that I don't see it as intrinsic to liberalism as such. And in the case of um, the second kind, the sort of asocial and acultural, we need to remember that at the turn of the 20th century, for example, you can find the Hegelian liberalism of T.H. Green, 
who saw himself as a, both a Hegelian and a liberal, so very much sort of wanted to take into account in a society and history, and that liberals from the feminists, I mean, you know, um, feminism is a big tent. There are many feminists who are scornful of liberalism. They're sort of, you know, drawing on post-structuralism and, you know, Kristeva and so forth. But for feminist liberals, the claim would be that you can, you know, reconceptualize the individual in such a way as to take account of the fact that all of us are going to be dependent on others for long periods of our lives. And this caretaking labor is labor that needs to be valued. It needs to be sort of taken into account in any theory of justice. And then the sort of final aspect, the sort of structural one, which is one I'm particularly interested in, again, I would claim that it's not intrinsic in liberalism as a theory that the individuals in actual society are in equal relations. And if you think of Locke's critique of you know, Sir Robert Filmer, his main target in the second treatise of government, he's basically saying it is unfair that some men should rule over other men in the name of their alleged superiority. So that's there in John Locke. I mean, what more respectable liberal could there be? So if you extrapolate that, as he himself, of course, would not have done, you can extrapolate that, I think, to race and gender and say it is unfair that people by virtue of their gender membership or their racial membership should rule over others because government is supposed to be based on consent. Women have not freely given informed consent to patriarchy. People of color have certainly not given consent to white supremacy. So I would claim that there are principles imminent in the liberal tradition that have not been used to talk about race and gender that can be ex extrapolated to race and gender. So that's why I emphasize that this, ver this version of liberal theory is going to have a different social ontology and a different mapping of society and the political and a different account of history. So I know it seems bizarre, I know it seems counterintuitive, but I sort of want to keep on emphasizing to what extent are we seeing liberalism in the incarnation of the dominant variety of the past few hundred years? And can we estrange ourselves from this liberalism, sort of see it from a distance and ask ourselves, can we envisage a different liberalism founded on a different social ontology that takes account of the history of subordination, that takes account of the way people are sort of put in these relations by you know, particular uh, mappings of the socio-political territory, could you get a different schedule of rights and freedoms that's going to correct for gender domination, that's going to correct for racial domination, and that's going to sort of make it possible for individuals of all groups to flourish as liberalism promises, because that's a foundational promise. It's supposed to be an ideology for individual flourishing with individuals as moral equals everybody being given the chance to realize themselves. I'm interested in uh, hearing you comment about uh, um, how your talk might be different if, if you were giving this talk in Asia um, to an Asian audience. Uh, what about, what about uh, race and, and, uh, and the Eastern philosophers and how, how would it be different? 
Yes, um, there are interesting questions raised because there's been resistance um, on the part of some Asian nations and the idea that liberalism is basically this Western imposition. We have our own particular set of values. And I have a certain sympathy with that in that as somebody from the third world, I have a sympathy sort of anti-imperialism. Nonetheless, what I would want to claim is that you can have a, an, a liberalism which is sensitive to sort of national difference, but which wants to emphasize the importance of people in these societies being able to sort of realize themselves. In other words, um, to what extent is tradition and national culture being used as a rationale to sort of cover up gender subordination, subordinations of other kinds? You know, that's just the way we do it. It has a sort of you know, legacy of hundreds of years. So the sort of criticism of liberalism from a communitarian point of view in the name of particular national cultures, I think it runs the danger that, you know, the question is, does this sort of set of values that are supposedly values of the community as a whole, is it really everybody's set of values or does it represent the values of particular elite groups? So it's a controversial question, as I'm sure you know, because of the charge of imperialism and the and sort of imposition of Western values in a different guise. But sort of in a line I think you'd have to use is the argument about gender subordination. Is it the case that you know, tradition is being used to sort of rationalize a situation where not everybody gets an equal chance? Concerned about. I'm concerned about the, uh, the definition of race. I'm one of those poor people that have to be So, what I have here is that race is defined by a social domination in which the privileged whites basically define what, what status is and privileges and so on are, or disadvantages and privileges when I work through. That's my notes quickly taken. Um, and I'm concerned um, that. The notion of race can break down eventually to apply to any group, whether it is um, anything that would be traditionally understood as a race, or as a gender group, or a religious group, or a sexual orientation group, or, or so on. Where then do you justify this idea of sociopolitical notion of race when it can so easily break down? How do you draw the boundaries? Right. Um, I'm sort of linking race to systems of domination, but you're certainly correct that this would not be sufficient to demarcate race because there are all kinds of systems of domination. There's class domination, there's gender domination, there's religious domination, so you need to sort of build more in. So that was just like a kind of shorthand sketch. That was not a kind of, you know, sort of full um, characterization of things. Um, apart from anything else, white racial domination, though historically the most important kind, is not the only kind. So you can't sort of build whiteness into the definition. You have to talk about racial systems in general and then say the most important one has been this, but this sort of allows for the fact that in certain Asian countries, for example, you have, you have Asian ethnic minorities being subordinated by, by other Asian groups. So you can have racial domination that does not involve relations between white and non-white. 
But the general point certainly is that you need a definition which demarcates race as a system of domination from, from other kinds. And then you talk about stuff that historically, for example, um, racism of a biological kind was very important in terms of people being seen as you know, um, in separate biological sections of the human race. But then it's complicated. Some people have argued that since World War II, cultural racism has become more important. So race is now defined by culture. So you need a definition that's sensitive to the different markers that have been historically taken to sort of demarcate races. I wonder if your ideas apply to what is really a shift in American liberalism from the natural law, individualistic liberalism, which you spoke about, to the pragmatic, progressive liberalism, the crossroads liberalism of the progressive movement, and really is a liberalism of today, because the analysis applies the same way. Right. Um, I was claiming that it applies in general because I see these um, different varieties of liberalism, and you're absolutely right that there have been shifts, as nonetheless falling under the sort of big umbrella of you know, historic liberalism in its commitment to um, individual flourishing, to egalitarianism, to universalism, sort of individual rights and freedoms. So though there are different emphases, um, and certainly you know, within the US history, you've had different kinds of liberalism come to the fore at different times, I would claim that they still fall under this big umbrella, and that also all of them have been problematic on race. Lovely talk, thank you very much. Uh, if I understand you, you wanted to overcome abstract liberalism, yes. uh, in which everyone is seen as equal and, and uh, race is not uh, seen as important. And we need to move to a liberalism in which race matters. Yes. But the final thing is to reach a society in which race is erased. Yes. I get any number of students coming to me saying, we're there. All right, and I hadn't even heard about it, had I only known. But wait a second, what will this mean for, for my speaking invitations? I'm going to have to start giving a whole global warming. I start talking about global warming. <laughs> We're already there, yes. There's a black guy in the White House, for God's sake. Sure. Okay, one sort of quick and ready answer would be when the life chances of whites are the same as the life chance of people of color. That was sort of, you know, one sort of easy, easy, easy definition. In terms of your students specifically, I have a, a similar problem. I'm teaching a course in African-American philosophy at Northwestern this term, and sometimes I get a response from the students that by talking about race and being racist, so that the mere mention of race makes you racist. It doesn't even matter what you're saying about race. The word, along using this terminology, Professor Mills, why do you keep saying things like that? In a course on African-American philosophy, it's difficult not to talk about race, as you can imagine. 
So what, what you say to kids, you know, born, you know, sort of, you know, say 20 years ago, you sort of have to explain to them, look, look at continuing racial statistics of differentials. Look at differences in income, look at differences in wealth, look at segregation, look at residential segregation. Um, in, large, in, city, in large American cities with large black populations, residential segregation has barely changed in 20 years. Look at segregation education. As, as you guys know, Brown is now more than 50 years behind us. In certain parts of the country, the educational system is now more segregated than it was at the time of Brown. So you need to have those figures, those stats, those facts and figures at your fingertips and just say, look at all this stuff. Can you seriously say we're in a post-racial epoch when the differences between races, between blacks and whites, between whites and Latinos are still so sharp? And of course, there's, there's an argument that, yeah, those are differences, but it's not because of racism. It's because, for example, blacks commit more crimes, blacks don't want to sort of take advantage of the opportunities in the economy. So you then need sort of a counter-argument to say, well, that's a competing hypothesis. Here's some evidence to suggest that that's not, not right. So you need the sort of facts and figures. You need to sort of be up on the latest date and say, well, guys, black guy in the White House, but let's face it. He didn't get to the White House by running as a black guy. On the contrary, he got to the White House by running as a guy who does happen to be black. And that was obvious from the campaign. It's even more obvious given what has come out subsequently in terms of the various books about the campaign. There's nobody in this room who can name for me a single racial justice plank in Obama's platform because there was not any racial justice planks in Obama's platform. He did not run as a racial justice candidate. That was not his agenda, and if he tried to implement aggressively a racial justice agenda now, arguably there would be a huge backlash with people saying, that's not what I voted for you for. As long as you have that situation, we're emphatically not in a post-racial epoch. Okay, thanks for your question. I mentioned um, erstwhile friends or friendly enemies, and this is a point that has often been raised. Um, so first of all, it depends what's your explanation for the sources of racism. And there's not one explanation, there's a set of competing explanations. For example, there's the following explanation. All human beings are ethnocentric, all human beings divide the world into in-groups and out-groups. Racism is just a kind of codification and taken to a higher level in a more systematized way of natural ethnocentric tendencies we all have. So white racism has been very influential, but you could imagine an alternative world where blacks were in power and black racism would have been just the same. So that's one kind of explanation. There's another explanation that focuses on white racism and says that European color symbolism is to blame. 
particularly English, because in the English language, you go back to the 13th, 14th centuries, look at the associations of the terms white and black, and white is in a cleanliness, virtue, light, black is associated with your darkness, dirt, fear, and so forth. And the claim is that Europeans, with this way of looking at the world, then go out into the world, encounter black Africans, and then project onto them all the negative traits that are linked with these words. So um, Winthrop Jordan, a very important book in the late 60s, um, White Over Black, where in his opening chapters focused on that kind of thing. There are explanations in terms of psychosexual factors. Um, it's claimed that racism really runs deep. It's linked with, okay, is this an audience where I can say this stuff? Well, I guess I'm going to the airport on Saturday, so it's okay. <laughs> okay, so the claim is that the white body, on the white body, the, the anal and genital regions with these particular very powerful associations of you know, shame and desire, these are the dark parts of the white body. So you as a white person, when you see black people, you associate them with these regions. Hey, I, I didn't come up with a theory. Okay, so that's a whole range of theories. There are also, what you're asking me about, theories of political economy. And theories of political economy would basically say, racism is a rationalization of a particular kind of class exploitation where the, where the group in question is sub-proletarianized. So it's not um, class prejudice against the white working class. It's a group that you're going to sort of put at a lower level. So it means that the conditions do not rise to the conditions of white wage labor. So we need an ideology which justifies this. And that's what racism does with respect to slavery, with respect to Jim Crow, and so forth. So there's a range of competing explanations. Which one is correct? People are still fighting over it. So if you have a political economy explanation, you'd give a kind of Marxist account of where racism comes from. And then linked with that, and this is where I have friends in Chicago criticize me on this, the argument would be you cannot separate issues of racial justice from class justice. Because of the sort of intricate link of the two, you cannot separate them. And my claim would be, let's break down this, this um, argument in different components. Is the claim that you cannot separate them conceptually? I would say that's false. Because if you're saying that race and class are the same, that's false because there's a black middle class that also suffers racism, and that is not the same as a black working class. So I would say the conceptual claim does not work. Now, is there a political claim that you cannot achieve racial justice without tackling class justice? I think there's a possible argument for that. I tend to bracket that argument when I'm giving these talks because it's such a complicated question. But insofar as racial justice requires the overcoming of a system, insofar as the system, from what I've said myself, privileges whites, then the obvious question is, what motivation would white people have to endorse the dismantling of the system? So there's a range of possible answers to that as well. Here's one answer. It's a right-wing answer. The way to mobilize the white population is to convince them that it's in the interest of whites as a group to get rid of racism. How can you do this, you ask? Well, are there any fans here of the late HBO show the, the Wire, any, any, any Wire fans there? Nobody in Colorado watches The Wire? Okay, maybe five or six people. Okay, I'm sorry? Okay, there you go. 
Okay, so for those who don't know even what I'm talking about, The Wire followed over a course of five seasons the doings of a, a police surveillance unit in Baltimore and a set of criminals in Baltimore and very intricate plot lines, sort of detailed study of race and so forth. So here's the point of my example. In this show, you saw all kind of black criminals, sort of in a detailed drug activity, sort of sitting around executive tables. Okay, you take this. These guys would make great corporate CEOs. They're putting their energies into criminal activity of one kind. They need to encourage to put their effort into criminal activity of another kind. Oops, no, I, sorry, I, that was slipped out. I didn't mean that. So you need to encourage these guys to go into the corporate sector. How do you do that? You open up the economy. You sort of drop the racial barriers, and there's a vast pool of untapped talent out there in the population of people of color. And with everybody in, the whole GDP will be bigger. There'll be a bigger pie for everybody. Instead of the sort of huge present cost of the, of the prison industrial system, you'll be able to save all that. There'll be much less racism, there'll be much less um, racial incidents. So everybody will benefit. So that's one argument. You can sort of try to make a case to the white population as a whole that um, getting rid of racism is in their interest. There's also a left-wing variant. The left-wing variant goes like this. It's going to be in vain if you think you can win over the entire white population. You have to target a particular section of the white population and win them over. What is that section? It's the white unemployed, the white working class, these days increasingly even the white middle class. And the argument you would give to these guys is this. You guys are screwed, but you don't realize it. Why don't you realize it? Because you're comparing your situation to these black guys and saying, hey, I'm doing badly, but at least I'm better off than them. That's the wrong comparison. You should be comparing yourself and the fates of your children, because the argument sometimes is more effective if you put it not in terms of you know, direct family. No, what's going to happen to your kids and your grandkids? You'll be comparing yourself how are my grandkids going to do in a future United States? What are their prospects? You should be comparing you know, the fate that you're in now with the fates of your children under a capitalist system that is more equitable than the current one. That's one version, that's a left liberal one, and I suspect you're talking about the sort of further left version where you compare your fates to what we do under socialism, right? Okay, the left liberal version would go like this. Why is the U.S. so strange? Okay, no disrespect to the U.S. as my adopted nation, I'm an immigrant here, etc. but in many ways, the U.S. is a very strange country. And as I pointed out before, of the Western democracies, it has the most unequal distribution of income, the most unequal distribution of wealth. It's the only Western democracy without a universal healthcare system. What explains this? Well, you could say there are different factors. There's the fact that it was the sort of huge nation. So if you were having problems in the sort of Northeast, you could you know, go west, young man, and sort of strike out there. So the idea was there was sort of you know, always more land, always more prosperous, those kinds of explanations. But one set of explanations has focused on race. And the argument has been that in the United States, the influence of race has been so strong that the white working class have identified primarily as white rather than workers. And the result of that is that the working class movement in this country is far weaker than in Western Europe, 
The trade union movement, it's now down to 12% 12, 12 of um, workers unionized, is far weaker than Western European countries, and there's no national social democratic party, such as the New Democratic Party in Canada, such as the old Labour Party, not so much the new Labour Party under Blair in Britain. In other words, in Western Europe, you have a much broader spectrum of political parties than you have here. Here we have two major parties, a right-wing party and a sort of centrist party within a left wing. And the idea is that the reason US capitalism is so inequitable, is so extreme, is because there's been no countervailing force to the, to the class privilege. And that's because race has generally trumped class. So that people have said, what am I primarily? I'm a white man. They haven't thought of themselves primarily as workers and said, let's ally with black workers in a class alliance across racial lines they've identified as, as in racial terms. So the argument is that what you need, you need a United States in which the wealth, and this is the wealthiest country in the world, I don't have to tell you guys, the wealth is spread around in a more equitable fashion. And the way to do that is to try to make a case to the white working class, to the white unemployed, to the tens of millions of poor white people in this country. We need a class alliance across racial lines to create a social movement that will lead to a United States where the wealth is distributed in a more equitable fashion. So what you're then trying to do is to split off a section of the white population and say to them, come with us in an alliance in which we can get both racial justice and class justice. So thank you for your question, because yes, those are the points people have raised to me, and the presentation I've given, I focus it from an abstract philosophical point of view, rather than talking about the practical question of how to put it in practice. But you know, if it's a case of you know, how you actually get this program off the ground, then those kinds of questions would have to be faced, yes. Um, Question from this side of the room, anybody over here? No? Yes. Um, if, if, we're, if the society is going to move forward and, in a way, to become uh, people of all kinds of lines and class divisions, are you arguing that some sort of inequality are necessary in American society? Are you saying that come from merit or ability or? So the traditional rationale for market society is that it frees things up so that people can rise as high as their talents take them. So the medieval society, as I said, born a serf, die a serf. Here, you might be born this, but you invent Microsoft, hey, you end up with $60 billion. So that's the idea that everybody's going to follow. Well, maybe not everybody, but that's the idea, right? So yes, you would still have inequalities insofar as a market society, but uh, on at least some theories of justice, these inequalities would be fair because they're inequalities of merit. As against the present situation, where a significant amount of the inequalities are really there's manifestations of gender privilege and racial privilege rather than actual merit. There's a more radical critique which says you should get rid of the inequalities altogether, but that's a, a different kind of paper. Why don't we take one more question and then I'll call it a on the road towards this raceless end, how effective do you see forms of what many have called anti-racist racism, such as the negative movement, militant groups, and the civil rights movement, Black Panthers, as 
an antithesis to the thesis of white knowledge. Okay. Okay, so Jean-Paul Sartre coined this famous phrase, anti-racist racism, talking about negritude, and the idea was you have white racism, which says, you know, we, we white people are the smart guys, these blacks, they're emotional, and they have natural rhythm and so forth, but you know, we're, we're the smart guys. Then you have negritude saying, yes, they are the smart guys, and we do have natural rhythm. And this was supposed to be progressive. So some people said, well, hold on a second, that's not progressive at all. You're just sort of taking white stereotypes and trying to give them a positive spin. So there are many people, many black intellectuals, who have problems with negritude and some of the framings of it. I'm not saying that all negritude can be reduced to that, but there were some prominent figures who had that kind of analysis. So my position is you don't want any kind of racism whether it's original racism or supposedly anti-racist racism. I don't think there's such a thing really as anti-racist racism. It is racism. So the struggle for racial justice, as I see it, involves uh, opposition to racism of all kinds. It's not seeking to establish a people of color domination over white people. It's seeking to establish a situation where there'll be no racial domination of any kind. So insofar as you have ideologies in some section of the black community that sort of put forward those views, I would say no. I can understand why you might be tempted to sort of argue along those lines, but I think it's basically a dead end, it's morally not permissible, and the, the principal position should be opposition to racism of all kinds.